Welcome in another edition of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. It is March. The NCAA tournament brackets are out, and we're going to talk about them today as uh, we get you ready for the NCAA tournament for 2023. Also, we're going to talk about some coaching moves around college basketball. And later on in the show, our much-anticipated, spoiler-filled recap of Episode 2 of the new season of The Mandalorian. So uh, we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Chris, what's going on, man? Wow. I'm just trying to stifle my bracket, dude. Uh, I've got the round of 32, and uh, I haven't gone any farther just yet because I'm wondering about some of these injuries. You know, Houston, Marcus Sasser uh, is is hurt, and i got to know whether Marcus Sasser is going to play before I can pick Houston and Iowa uh, because Iowa can score the basketball, and I don't know. I think they would give Houston fits, especially if Marcus Sasser did not play. Uh, UCLA is without Jalen Clark. He's not going to be there. Uh, and and another starter is, is missing. So uh, who knows what's going to happen there? Kansas is without Kevin McCullers and maybe without Bill Self. Who knows? Nobody said what happened to Bill Self. It, it sounds like maybe he had a stent put in. I, I don't know. It, it's not good when you're in the hospital. I know that. Yeah, I heard a little bit about that. In fact, I read the uh, statement that they put out that Bill Self, he, he missed the Big 12 tournament, uh, had a procedure for blocked arteries. He wasn't feeling well, yeah. went to the hospital. They said he was out of the hospital and reported in good condition. But I'm like you, uh, what exactly is his status going to be for the tournament? I think they're pretty hopeful that he's going to be back, but that can make a big difference too, no question about it. And, and of course, a little closer to home, Tennessee, losing Zakai Ziegler. Saw them play yeah. in the SEC tournament a couple times, and they're definitely not the same team without him. And not at all. You know, you look at the round in the Southeastern Conference, which I've, I've spent the last few days at the tournament downtown uh, here in Nashville. The the injuries to key players in that league had a major impact on teams that made it or didn't make it or how they were seated. Uh, the team I call games for Vanderbilt, Liam Robbins went out for the season about five games ago when uh, the Commodores played at Kentucky and Vanderbilt was able to win four without him, including beating the Wildcats twice. But I'll always kind of wonder when it came to where they stood actually on the tournament bubble, how much that affected things. Florida losing Colin Castleton, that could have very well cost them a trip to the NCAA tournament as well because yeah. they ended up 9-9 nine and nine in the SEC. Maybe they win a couple more games if they have him. So, yeah, injuries are always a part of the story. But, I mean, you're talking about some really impactful players. And I think the one to Marcus Sasser with Houston is a major one because if you look at their bracket in the Midwest – I think they might have the the least difficult path to the Final Four when you look at the other teams that are in there with them. I mean, there's certainly some teams in that bracket that look capable. And uh, I, an interesting game I circle in that one is that Miami and Drake game. And then at the bottom of the bracket, you have yeah. a, the potential for a Texas-Texas A&M matchup. Funny how those things work out. But uh, it is. That, that injury to Sasser, though, that, that could really be big for Houston. And if he's good to go, then I like them as well as anybody to win the whole deal. But if he's not, it could be a whole different story. Yeah, I mean, he they struggled to score. They lost the American Athletic Conference tournament title game to, to Memphis. And, you know, they're a blue-collar team. They get by on defense and, and offensive rebounding. And they really need all the scoring punch they can get. And without him, you know, the player of the year in the league, I'm – I don't know. So I, I have yet to pick that game. I, I reserve the right to wait, but they may not announce his status. So sure. I'm just going to have to go with my gut. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of picks here where 
I don't know, you, you eventually have to go with your gut, sort of. Uh, and every year I tell myself I'm, I'm not going to go out on a limb. I'm, I'm going to try to play it basic, you know, and not pick that many, but upsets. But th- there's just some that, that I really – I'm like you, Drake over Miami. I think Drake is a really good basketball team. Uh, you know, the Missouri Valley – it's a tough league and an underrated league, I think, nationally. And and uh, they pretty much had their way in that league. So uh, I'm going to pick Drake over Miami in, in the Midwest. So those, some of those I just can't help myself. I, uh, <laughs> I'll end up regretting it when my <laughs> students uh, uh, make fun of me. I, I always have a bracket contest for my students. And I won it two years in a row. And I give away a little cash prize. Uh, obviously, if I win, I, I give it to the second place but winner. But last year, I got crushed. Uh, the girl that won it picked North Carolina just because she liked North Carolina's women's soccer team. <laughs> so, you know, it doesn't matter what you know, man. It's, it's kind of <laughs> maybe what you like or maybe your boyfriend told you uh, these teams are good or, or you like their mascots. I don't know, but uh, – Maybe there's some formulas to it. I, what I look for really is I look for momentum. Uh, you know, did you win your conference tournament? How many games in a row have you won? Do you come into this playing well? I look for really as, as much as they, they evolve into rock fights, offense is, is a huge factor because you have to have guys that can make some shots. So I look at teams that shoot the three ball well. Uh and if it's a mid-major and I'm trying to pick an upset, I, I see if maybe they've got a big man who will command single or double coverage maybe. That that doesn't happen often when a power conference plays a, a mid-major. So I kind of look for stuff like that. But I know there's other – people use other metrics. But uh, at, at the end, it's just when, when that whistle blows and the ball gets tossed up, anything can happen and – that's why we love this tournament so much. Alabama out of the SEC, they won the regular season and the tournament championships, and pretty convincingly in both. They they went sixteen and two in the league, and they beat Texas A and M pretty easily in the in the conference final. They they pretty much blew through the tournament in the three days that they played. Um, I, I saw, in fact, I actually called one of their games. They played against Mississippi State, and then I saw them on Saturday. They beat Missouri, which Missouri was pretty tough. I thought Missouri was impressive in that tournament, and then they beat a, a really good Texas A&M team that had just yeah. knocked off Alabama the previous week in, in the final game of the regular season. Al- Alabama has all the, the offense you could ever hope for. The thing that, that gives me a little bit of pause is is they can blow a little hot and cold at times, they shoot a lot of threes, and if, yeah. if, the, if the threes aren't dropping, you can be vulnerable in, in a one-and-done type situation. And I look on down at the bottom of their bracket, the number two seed is Arizona, and, and I think if it got to that point, or maybe Baylor, which is a three there, and even, say, a, a Sweet 16 matchup against Virginia, I, I think they're going to have a maybe a more difficult path to the Final Four than some people could be expecting, even a second-round game against the Maryland-West Virginia winner. But uh, NATO's team... For everything that's happened this season uh, on the court, the, the the product has been really, really good, and they have a, a deep team with with a lot of tall, long dudes that can really shoot and are very versatile, and, and a good big in Charles Bediaco that uh, you know he can be a rim protector and really he can get up and down the floor pretty good and then score some if they need him to. So they look like they have all the pieces to uh, to make a run, but I I, th- I think their South region is maybe more difficult than uh, maybe some people are expecting it to be. 
Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think uh, somebody called Alabama a Noah's Ark team. They've got two of everything. <laughs> and you're right. Uh, th- they can catch uh, a lightning in a bottle from three, or they can get cold. But the thing about it is Nate Oates come hell or high water. He's a metrics guy, and their deal is they need to shoot 33s a game. And uh, if you shoot that many, you're going to probably blow hot and cold. But in, in the last two games in, in the SEC tournament, they they turned it on late, especially Brandon Miller. And, you know, you, you eventually see one go in, and then it's not just to say that they rely on the long ball because their other deal is, is twos at the rim. So they're always going to try to get, you know, what they consider, uh, you know, uh, Nate Oates is a, is a former math teacher. So he figures, yeah, you know, three points is better than two. So that's going to be my first option. But I also want to try to get twos at the rim because that's a high percentage shot. And if not, that gets fouled. So they've got a bunch of people. Mark Sears, the transfer from Ohio, had been in a little bit of a shooting slump. You know, he's a 40% three shooter. So. If he snaps out of that, uh, they're going to be tougher to beat. And Javon Quinterly, they made the decision to put him back in the starting lineup. And uh, they call him J.Q. March. You know, he was the tournament MVP uh, a couple of years ago. And, and uh, you know, he played really well in this tournament. And and I think uh, as he goes, they're going to go. And, and it won't hurt if if Mark Sears shoots it better. And obviously Brandon Miller, he's, he's a stud. I, I mean – Jimmy Dykes kept saying all tournament long, uh, whoever whoever Alabama plays, they're going to immediately have the best player on the floor in Brandon Miller. So I I wouldn't disagree with that at all. Yeah, no doubt. Watching that guy, the thing that impresses you about Brandon Miller, and I've, I've seen him play in person probably three or four times this year, is just his patience and the for a, for a really young guy, he doesn't try to force yeah. anything. He can miss a few shots, but he's not going to try to bother him. He's not going to try to force it and, and and try to get back on track. The, the it's cliche to say somebody lets the game come to him, but but he really does that, and that's the thing that's impressed me the most. You're you're saying that uh, about him having two of everything. They also have two Noahs, I guess, for that matter. Uh, they have Noah yeah. Gurley and Noah Clowney. Uh, yeah, that's good, man. <laughs> I, feel free to use that leave line. Leave it to you to think of stuff like that. Man. Right. You're the quickest on the feet I've ever ever worked with, brother. Uh, but yeah, you're right. And, and uh, Noah Clowney is a guy that that doesn't get talked about as much as some of the others, but he's a 6'10 guy who can make threes, protect the rim. And Noah Gurley, you know, he's a transfer, uh, came from Furman. He was the man there and and had every expectations of being a starter at Alabama. But, you know, basically they recruited over him. Brandon Miller is better than Noah Gurley, but Noah Gurley, he could have left and gone to another school, but he hung around for this reason. You know, he wanted to be the guy. And you know, in the SEC tournament, he made a couple of nice shots. He he played down the stretch. So, yeah, they've got yeah two Noahs. Now we just need an arc. <laughs> well, they got an arc. It's out there. They they shoot behind it all the time. That's right. <laughs> we're we're really riffing here. Yeah, it's we like are. A good jazz combo. <laughs> they, right. they use that arc pretty well. They do use that arc very well. No question about it. Uh, as far as the toughest region go, to me, it looks like the East. It's a really stacked field with Purdue as the top seed. What do you think there? Yeah, I agree. I I think that Purdue struggled a little bit down the stretch because they're freshman guards. Again, not to use a cliche, but, you know, they say freshmen hit a wall uh, late in the season. But there's also that cliche 
well, we've played 33 games or whatever, that now we're no longer freshmen. So uh, if Purdue's freshman guards can play like they did in November earlier in the season, they're going to be hard to beat. Uh, some people, though, uh, think that Memphis might be able, if they escape FAU in the first round, might be able to challenge Purdue. But I, I'll tell you what, I, I think I like Jimmy Dykes a lot, and, and he, he could be right about Brandon Miller, but when Purdue and Alabama plays, I think Zach uh, Eady is going to be the best player on the floor because mm. he is just – the guy defies being guarded. I, I mean, I saw him yesterday in the Big Ten Championship, triple team. And he just gets the ball, and he's so big and he's so patient. His arms are so long. He just split all three of them and scored. So, you know, you just throw it into a guy who barely has to jump to put it in the basket. That's a huge weapon in in games that kind of devolve into these half-court rock fights. I thought it was pretty funny after the uh, – at, at the end of that Big Ten championship game – there was a loose ball. Penn State had a chance to win, and, and they turned it over. And then, then on the final play, there was a loose ball, and it bounced over. And, and Jim Nance stood up and caught the ball. And that was his last Big Ten tournament championship yeah. because he's going to stop doing college basketball after this Final Four. And uh, the guys were really having fun with him. It was Grant Hill and Bill Raftery on the call. And I, I just thought that was a great moment that, that he stood up and caught the ball and he's joking that he was going to shoot it. You know, and then the celebration begins for for Purdue. And then you have Tracy Wolfson uh, interviewing Zach Eady, which was kind of <laughs> a, a funny, you know, sighted in, in its own right. And yeah, I think, she's like five two. Yeah. Whatever he yeah, is. Yeah, he's like four. over seven feet. And yeah. Uh, yeah, that was for Purdue. They've, they've had a fantastic season. They, they really have. They, they've had some stumbles here and there, but they've had a really good year. I want to ask you about some uh, some middle seeds that, that could do some damage. One that stands out to me is VCU as a 12 against St. Mary's. Uh, Vanderbilt played both those teams back earlier in the season. I, I think VCU could take them out. Uh, we were talking about Drake against Miami in a 12-5 matchup there. Utah State against Missouri could be really interesting. Give me a couple that stand yeah. out to you as far as uh, teams sort of in the middle that, that might be able to make a little run. Yeah, I really struggle with that VCU-St. Mary's uh, pick. I ultimately went with St. Mary's, but VCU is well coached by Mike Rhodes, and and they play that frenetic style that, that was started under Shaka Smart because Mike Rhodes was an assistant there at the time. So that one that one stands out, but I really like uh, the Utah State-Missouri uh, game as an upset special. I intentionally watched the Mountain West uh, final, and I really like Utah State. Uh, I, I, they shoot the, the three at a high level. They've got good size. They're an older, experienced team. I like Missouri, too. I, I think they're capable of making a run, but Missouri is so predicated on – their fearlessness and making these crazy shots. They make crazy shots. And, you know, they, there could come a time when those don't fall. They're really not a, a strong defensive team. And Utah State is a really good scoring team. They, they score from two. Uh, they're good free throw shooters. And, of course, they're one of the top six three-point shooting teams in the country. So that's one I could not resist picking. As much as I admire Missouri and the job Dennis Gates did, and as much as I think he was robbed for SEC Coach of the Year, I, th- I still think they're they're going to be motivated by that a little bit. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to go with Utah State in that one. I, I just like Utah State and uh, the way they play. 
Was it Des Moines Hodge that made that shot at the end of the first half against Alabama? That might have been the most ridiculous shot in the, in the entire SEC tournament. In, insane. That guy's just a killer. I mean, they've got a bunch of killers. And it, it just goes to show you how things have changed with the portal. I mean, uh, they, they were able to keep Kobe Brown, but that's about it. Mm-hmm. They inherited a scorched earth program and rebuilt that thing through the portal. You know, a guy like Nick Honor comes from Clemson, and, you know, he's, he's not 5'10", as, as they list him. He's probably about 5'8", but he can knock down some threes. Uh, DeAndre Goldston from Milwaukee, that guy's a big guard who can score. Uh, yeah, uh, Dennis Gates has done a great job, but if you look at him, I, I couldn't help but notice this over a long week of watching ball. This new vanguard of coaches – they're not screamers and yellers and, and chair throwers and stuff. Uh, John Shire comes to mind. Dennis Gates, you know, putting their arms around guys and calmly talking to them. Here's what you did wrong. Here's what you need to fix. Uh, this is just the wave of the future, I think. And uh, Dennis Gates exemplifies that. He's such a smart dude. I used to interview him when I did a column for NBA.com on the draft. And Florida State always had people. And we talked once and I said, man, you're going to be a great head coach one day. I just knew it because, you know, he graduated from Cal in three years. He's super smart and, and he just gets it. You know, he's a player's coach. And I think that's what you have to do. I think Stackhouse is that way. Yeah. Uh, I don't see him screaming or go, going crazy. Uh, he kind of relates to players on, on a one-to-one level. And that's to me, the wave of the future. We're already in it. It's, it's been that way. There's been a few dinosaurs there. There's some guys that still scream and holler. Rick Barnes is hard on his players, for example, but the players know they that he loves them. He tells them that all the dang time. So uh, I think you've got to have players backs, and they'll be they'll accept hard coaching. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely a new way of coaching, and, and I think the players now want to be coached that way or maybe need to be coached that way. Uh, there are still some old school guys, but you're right. It's definitely changing. And, and I, and I was watching, you know, I was watching coach Gates when Missouri was playing and I noticed exactly the same thing you did. He was yeah. very calm. And you know, we played at Missouri back earlier in the season too. So I've seen them play a couple of times. Never raises his voice, yeah. you know, it, it, puts his arm around his kids, yeah. you know, looks them straight in the eye. I mean, he's got it going on. He's Missouri was smart to lock him up with all these, and I know we'll talk about the coaching carousel later, but with all these openings, they locked him up. I think it's another five-year deal uh, that'll keep him there for a while, so with a big buyout. Let's talk about some teams that got left out. Did you feel like Oklahoma State, Rutgers, Clemson maybe had the best cases of the teams that didn't make it? I do. Uh, I, I think Oklahoma State uh, had a legitimate beef, but they were they sort of fell victim uh, to their conference. And you, you might ask, well, then why didn't West Virginia? Because they had a losing conference record too. And they were just in, in the middle of the year, they lost six or seven in a row. Uh, so Oklahoma state's got a beef. I could, I could see where Clemson would be really steamed. Uh, and I, I had to look this up when, when they saw NC state's uh, name called as an 11 and to look back, Clemson beat NC State not once, not twice, but three times. The first time by 14, the second time by 25 at Raleigh. 
And the third time in the ACC tournament just last week by 26. So they beat a team head-to-head and also have a 12-6 and conference record. And they, they beat NC State by an average of 21.6 points. They're in the NIT, NC State's in, in the NCAAs. And, you know, CBS always grills the, the, the committee chairman after the end, and he had no good answer for that, uh, that I could see. He had no good answer for that. So uh, I'd be pretty bummed if I were Clemson. And uh, I can speak uh, personally. I'm pretty bummed that Vanderbilt didn't get in and just played so great. <laughs> I know you are. The, the stretch run of the season, won 10 out of the last 12. Uh, the, the, yeah. the 12th game was the loss to Texas A&M in the SEC semifinals. But Vanderbilt went on a run that was just remarkable. Uh, buzzer beater against Tennessee, beat Auburn, which is a tournament team, beat Mississippi State, beat Kentucky twice in tournament 10 days team. after losing four yep. straight, 14 straight games against the Wildcats. They beat them twice in, in the span of less than two weeks. Without at, Liam Robbins. Yeah, without Liam Robbins, really both times. He got hurt about three or four minutes into the game up at Rupp. Uh, won that one on a couple shots by Jordan Wright at the end, and then a really memorable quarterfinal game back on Friday night uh, over at Bridgestone Arena, which is basically like playing another road game because the, the place is about you know, 80% percent Kentucky fans oh, always. Uh, and it, it was hard to take yesterday but I could kind of tell that when Mississippi stayed and Pitt popped up playing in the first four early on when they were revealing the brackets I, I did not think that boded well, was going to bode well for Vanderbilt and in the end it didn't I guess the thing I really I'm always puzzled by is why more consideration to conference play is not given in these things. It doesn't feel like even if you play in a power league, that makes all that much difference. Vanderbilt finished eleven and seven in the SEC. Mississippi State and Arkansas finished eight and eleven or eight and ten. And Vanderbilt beat both those teams head to head and also made it a little bit farther in the SEC tournament than either one of those did. And they were both safely in, or at least Arkansas was safely in. They were an eight. Mississippi State will play Pitt in the uh, in the first four, but that's the part of it to me that's a little hard to figure out. But I also look. look at how many teams the conferences got in and i wonder if they were reluctant to put more than eight for the sec in the tournament yeah when when you start to really stack them up and see see which conferences are getting how many teams the big 12 was right there as well that's a good point a big 10 at eight sec eight uh big 12 seven uh at one point in the year joe lenardi had sec down to as few as five and uh you know they they kind of turned it on at the end. Vanderbilt was one of those. And I just can't help but think if Lee and Robbins had been healthy and let's say that they were able to get past Texas A&M, I think they're in. I don't think you can deny them. And you're right. It's it's hard to take when you've got a winning conference record, you've won 10 of your last 12, and then you've beaten the two other teams head-to-head that got in ahead of you, Arkansas and Mississippi They, they both finished so, with losing conference records. Exactly. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, what what does the the conference mean? Uh, I mean, uh, Jay Billis alluded to that when he he made a remark about Texas Southern gets in the tournament with 20 losses. Well, they won their conference tournament. Yeah. So uh, over a Grambling team that you saw beat Vanderbilt, and and that was a and that was a costly loss for Vanderbilt. The the loss to Grambling. I mean, it's all the way back in the beginning of December. Um, that's yeah. you know been three months ago, but uh, that was one you look at and say you get that one, maybe that puts you over the top. Uh, Could be. I, I, it was a really difficult January schedule for Vanderbilt, and uh, 
the start of February is really the start of the big run. February and, and all the way through March has been terrific. But uh, go to the NIT, play Yale on, on Tuesday night, then uh, potentially Michigan or Toledo in the second game. Both those games will be at Memorial Gym uh, if, they, if they can win on Tuesday night. So, uh, yeah, Vanderbilt uh, back in the NIT where they won a couple games last year and uh, ended up losing to Xavier for a trip to New York. They're actually not having the NIT semifinals and championship in Madison Square Garden anymore. They're having it out in, in uh, Las Vegas at the Orleans Arena uh, arena out there and so uh it'll be a trying to, to win a trip to las vegas uh, instead of a trip to new york this time around north carolina said that they don't care about going to any of it the, they, they declined the nit uh they didn't yeah. make the ncaa tournament field after being ranked number one in the preseason do you think declining that is the right thing to do for their program you know i think so i i think for them uh and, and i i heard uh, uh armando baycott just wasn't interested uh, and, and he had that right to opt out. So without him, you know, you just add insult to injury. I think yeah, it's it's an embarrassing uh, decline. They're the first team in in history that that started the season preseason ranked number one and never got in the NCAA tournament. And uh, so, yeah, a, a puzzling decline there. Except to say that they kept trying to do the same old thing, and it you know. Uh, eventually you got to change it up. Their guards were trigger happy. I think uh, Hubert Davis didn't try to uh, develop his depth. And I think his starters played too many minutes. It was the same last year. And I don't know, uh, sooner or later, you got to change, change up some things. And they just never could do that. And I I don't blame them. I, I don't think I would have done it either. Cause every time, Every time you, your name is mentioned, it's all oh, the preseason number one that didn't get in the big dance. So, yeah, yeah, uh, they're probably just better off going on on spring break and then come back and, and start their individual workouts and get ready for next year. Real quick, the CBI tournament decided not to invite Detroit Mercy. Antoine Davis has 3,664 points in his career. That's three short of Pete Maravich's record. And they're completely different situations. We kind of understand all that. Uh, right. But he missed the three at the buzzer in the Horizon quarterfinals against Youngstown State that they would have tied the record. To me, like, that would be kind of a – I don't know if it's a cheap is the right word, but I don't know that that's the way you want to break the record even if you did get in. How do you feel about that whole situation? I couldn't agree more. It, it really – I think they should put a – an asterisk if he were to get it they're still not out of the running there's some i can't say it on a family show but there's some other little tournament but do you really want to do it that way even even if you're even if you're antoine davis i mean do you you want to do it that way the psa uh is what it's called uh it could be an option for them but uh you know that's panhandling to me and Nobody will ever break the Pistols record. Um, His average. Nobody. It was done in three years, uh, for, first of all. And I forget who who said this, but somebody went back and charted his shots. And it seems to me like he would have had almost 5,000 points if the three-pointer was around. Because, you know, he made a lot of layups, but he shot from distance, too. And, and – uh, and, and, of course, uh, Antoine Davis is doing it with the COVID year in five years. I think every any record that's broken needs to have a big old asterisk by it uh, COVID year because uh, uh, I just don't think there's any validity to it. And to stretch it out with the, 
what's something called the PSA. <laughs> oh, I wish I could use the phrase I want for that term, but I can't. <laughs> I won't. All right, let's talk We've about. We've got a clean rating. We we do. Yeah, we got. We want to. We want to hang on to our clean rating. That that's what we need that's to do. That's right. All right. I, well, I don't know if some of these coaches we're about to talk about have exactly a, a clean rating when it comes to their uh, their record over their coaching careers, but uh, some moves that Will Wade is hired at McNeese State. There's been talk of him yeah. going to Western Kentucky with Rick Stansbury resigning, and also uh, could Rick Pitino be on the move uh, with St. John's and Georgetown out there? Uh, would he leave Iona for one of those, or is there another one out there that he? has an eye on at some point i think some of those things are really interesting they really are what's weird is will wade moved back to chattanooga where i live as you know uh and he cut his deal with he schroyer the mcneese state uh ad in the chattanooga airport uh before he he boarded a a single engine propeller private plane to, to drive to fly down there way different world uh, he would have been on a, on a little a streamlined jet uh, back at LSU. But uh, I was surprised to see him. He, he's done a great job everywhere he's been. He's a hard worker. He's super intelligent. Uh, he was a pioneer of the NIL before the NIL was a thing. <laughs> before the NIL was legal. <laughs> yeah. So he's going to do a good job down there. It, it seems like a he must have liked Louisiana, you know, living down there. Uh, it, it seems like, I don't know, uh, maybe he could have been a little more patient. Uh, the McNeese State, been in the Southland. That's always been a league where you and, – and this could be good. I mean, Southland's always had – always gotten by on JUCO transfers even before the advent of the portal and Will Wade has tons of JUCO uh, connections. He has tons of connections anywhere. Uh, so, yeah, we'll see what happens on the show cause, but it doesn't matter once you've got a job. Uh, what are they going to do? The show cause is any school that wants to hire you would have to show a reason to yeah. hire you. And and so, if he's already hired, no big deal. Re- regarding uh, Patino, I think there's uh, mutual, uh, mucho love between St. John's and him, and I think that's a done deal af- after Iona gets put out of the tournament, and and that'll be that. Um, the the thing that's really crazy this year, Kevin, to me is is the quick hook. A lot of these coaches have gotten. Gigi Smith, son of Tubby, one year at High Point, he's gone. And Tubby gave them a million dollars for their arena, and the floor is named after him. It's like, no, no, sorry about that. Uh, your son, uh, well, we don't we don't feel the love there, so they ditched him. Uh, Austin P gets rid of Nate James after two years. East Tennessee State gets rid of Desmond Oliver after two years. Uh, Georgia Southern uh, fires their coach, uh, Brian Berg, after three years and a 17-win season. So there's been some quick hooks this year. On the other hand, uh, Georgetown went the distance with Patrick Ewing before they just finally decided, hey, you're an all-timer here at our school, but you're not as a coach. So uh, that's an intriguing job. I wonder who's going to get that. Ole Miss remains intriguing because I think Chris Beard is the candidate there. They're going to have to explain uh, why they hired him, uh, somebody that was accused of, of – uh, you know, whatever it was, uh, abuse towards his fiance, but, you know, no charges were filed. 
Uh, she recanted her story. So I'll tell you what, if Chris Beard gets the Ole Miss job, as you know, because you you went all around the league this year, the SEC is killer already. And if they had a guy like Chris Beard, who's a perfect fit for Ole Miss because he's just one of those rough-and-tumble guys that recruits the JUCOs and transfers and is a quick uh, fixer-upper, wow. Uh, where do you go for losses in that league? Uh, I'd hate to be Lamont Paris at South Carolina because that's where they're going to go. All right, Chris, from coaches on the move to our, our favorite duo that's always on the move, let's talk about episode two of the new season of The Mandalorian. Uh, as Din Djarin and Grogu uh, made the track to Mandalore, uh, and, and by the way, if you watch this series, we're, we're going to give you some spoilers, so you might want to just, yeah. just, just turn down your you know, what you're listening you to the podcast down. on for, for a couple minutes here. This is the fastest growing segment of oh, the podcast. There, there's no doubt. It always has been where we, we recap whatever Star Wars series is going on. But uh, they went back to Mandalore as, as uh, Din Djarin's trying to sort of get back in the good graces of the Mandalorians. Uh, he got captured. Grogu went and got the uh, always delightful and, and you know person with a sunny disposition, Bo-Katan, to come rescue him. Yeah. She just wasn't very... She was sulking for months. Right, she was sulking place. that she didn't you know wasn't able to, to capture the Darksaber. And so then she reluctantly uh, loaded up and, and went to get uh, to try to rescue... Uh, then Jaren and uh, rescued him once. He decided to, you know, go take his dip in the waters, and, and that didn't go all that well. And so Bad she had to go move. get him again as the show was running out. There, there's a lot to unpack in episode two. There, there really is, and I really enjoyed it. It was, um, I, I read some review where they called it a simple episode, and 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 it was. You know, there was just a couple of locations, uh, and and Mandalore was one of them, and. I was wrong about after the first episode. I thought that uh, Bo-Katan and, and Din Djarin slash Mando would would uh, be mortal enemies. But I think now they're going to pair up. Uh, and and that they've set the tone for the rest of the series. And that is they're going to rebuild the planet of Mandalore. They're going to gather the old gang. They're going to put the band back together, <laughs> make the planet vital. And, and and they're and they're going to kick butt and take names doing it. And if you noticed at the end, after Bo-Katan dove into the magical waters of Mandalore and saved him from that, uh, what do they call that? The that creature, the myth Mythalore or something. Yeah, I'm not sure what you call that one. A big ugly creepy goon. Yeah. And uh, I don't know whether the whether the creature grabbed him or whether he just like was going shallow shallow deep oh crap (laughs) right i don't have my jetpack on i've got my armor on but anyways uh bo katan dove in there and got him and uh as he was putting his weaponry back on you notice he put the dark saber back on his tool belt and she was all hunky-dory so i think they're going to team up and i think it's great because i love katie sackhoff i just love her and of course she's had all this experience in the star trek uh, saga and all that stuff and and now she makes a great character she voiced the character i guess in the clone wars i never watched the animated stuff you and your son probably did didn't you yeah we've watched a little bit of that he's way into it more more than i am i, I like the live action stuff i'm not as into the animated stuff uh, no no me neither but but she's you know she she this character has got a long history and and 
I think they're going to team up. And, and uh, John Favreau and, and Dave Filoni have done such a great job uh, of being stewards of this great saga that we've all loved since we were kids. And they loved it. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of content on, I even hate that word content, but there's a lot of viewing uh, options these days. And some of it's good. Some of it's okay. Some of it's not very good. When you catch something that's brilliant, uh, I mean, sometimes my son will say to me, he's, he's a movie historian and uh, runs the Chattanooga Film Festival. Good God, man, what are you, what you going to, what's it take for you to say something's great? And, and I say The Mandalorian's great. Uh, I think it's well-written. It's well-acted. Uh, and, and the story is well-told by a couple of showrunners who grew up with it and are reverential toward it. And I love that stuff. We'll keep you up to date on what's going on with The Mandalorian and, of course, with the NCAA tournament. Always fun to do our Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. Chris, great to speak with you and hang out for a little bit, and we'll talk to you next time, man. All right, buddy. Talk to you soon. He's Chris Dorch. I'm Kevin Ingram. That is the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. We'll talk to you next time.